I just want to start with a story this morning, really. It's a story uh, of the man who got hold of this 500 years ago this year, Martin Luther. And as a result of him reading the Bible in Greek rather than Latin that the church was using the day, he realised that salvation was by grace through faith alone. Martin Luther, his father was a, he was a really successful businessman. And he was a self-made man. He, um, he sort of set off in the commodities business and in the end he ended up owning a really valuable copper mine. And he used, he used that money to invest in his son's career. And Martin Luther got the best education. Um, he was a very bright guy. He was a prodigy. He went to university. He got his degree in one year. And then he carried on and he got a master's a little while later. And what, what the idea was is that he was destined for a career in law. In fact, what, what his father wanted for him and Martin Luther wanted for himself is that he would go into the law, work within the civil service and government and bring about change to the country he lived in, which was Germany, which at that time wasn't really a country. It was a lot of fragmented principalities. And um, one day he was out and he was in coming across a field and there was a storm breaking all around him and the, there was lightning and it hit the ground just near where he was. And he started crying out to God that if God would save him, he would become a monk. And he got home and he got home safely and as far as we know, immediately regretted what he'd said but went through with his promise and became a monk. And for the next, I don't know how many years, spent his life dedicating himself to being a good monk. And he worked exceptionally hard to please God. He, he fasted. He was the best faster in the monastery. He prayed more than anybody else. He, it's, a, it's a weird word, I think, flagellated more than anybody else. That basically means he whipped himself to make himself more holy because he wanted to get rid of his flesh. Um, it's reported that he would sometimes spend up to four or five hours in the confessional because he didn't want to leave anything about his life that might be wrong unconfessed. And he would do that most days. And the outcome of all that constant effort to please God was that he had no peace. In fact, he got depressed. And the, the superior, the, the guy that ran the monastery, I don't, I don't know what they call him, chief monk, father, prior, whatever, um, he saw what a state Martin Luther got into and his solution for that must be that he wasn't working hard enough, so he gave him more work, more duties, and told him to do more confession. It didn't help. Now, we know that Luther finds grace and faith. But what we can learn from all that episode, all that journey that he went on is this. Now, I want you to hear this really clearly. Because it's so important in our experience that we understand 
for this principle because many in the body of Christ don't understand this principle and as a result, they're in a mess or they're stuck. Now, the principle's this. And it might be when I first say it, you don't like what I say. But conviction about our condition doesn't mean we have the ability to do anything about it. And so much of church life, so much of church teaching, so much of, of religion that, that exists is about telling us that we need to be convicted of our sin. But unless that teaching, unless that conviction also comes with the ability to do something about that conviction, it makes the situation worse, not better. Because, because many in church don't understand that principle, they, they try and hit people with what they're doing wrong. And they create in that person the belief system that they are never good enough, that they're a failure, that they're no good for anything, and they can't do anything to please God. But because they're convicted, they keep on trying to please God, and they keep on burning themselves out, unable to please God and unable to find peace. Because we have preached conviction without the ability to do anything about the conviction. So we don't desire conviction. You know, I've, I've heard people, you know, I, I know people who, who have been close to us who, who would go, we just need God to pour out a spirit of conviction. No, you need God to pour out the Holy Spirit who gives you the ability to do something about the conviction. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through this. But beating people up isn't the answer. Telling people how bad they are and they need to try harder isn't the answer. Introducing more rules to make people better isn't the answer. It works for a while and ultimately what happens is people end up miserable. You see, when the response is further failure or lack of change, we conclude that what is needed is even more conviction, just like Martin Luther's um, <coughs> boss, Abbott. Abbott, that's the word, Abbott. Now, you've got to understand this, because the thing about when you preach on something is you can't cover everything on the same morning. I am not saying, repeat after me, Mark is not saying, not conviction saying. is a bad thing. Holy Spirit conviction is necessary. We, you know, the Holy Spirit helps us identify the areas that he wants to give us the ability to change in. But without the ability to do anything about it, the problem is that things get worse if we focus on what is wrong rather than better. Because as we think we are, that's what we become like. And if we think we are a failure, we end up being a failure. If we think we can't beat the sin in our life, we can't. And the truth is that for a born-again believer, we have been set free from sin and given the ability to be transformed to be like Christ. Now, why, why, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because how we relate to God is absolutely crucial to us receiving the fullness of salvation that he has for us. 
You see, in the same way we were originally born again or we were originally saved, we, the same way we also received the benefits of Christ's victory at the cross. So we were saved through what Christ did at the cross and put in our belief in him. And we live that same way day to day through the victory of the cross and our belief in what he has provided and what he has done for us. We were sharing this in our um, life group this week when we, we, we covered the first bit of the material. And, and Bob just had a little testimony. I wonder if he, he'd be willing to like come and just tell us. We were touching on this point. And Bob said, that was me. Yeah, what Mo has just been saying is basically the way my life has been. Um, when I was um, first saved, I felt such a f sense of freedom, uh, and I was really happy. And that lasted for about 18 months. Now, I've been a Christian for 48 years, and I have been burnt out three or four times, um, suffered depression for about 10 years, and that was done by church and the people that was teaching me because I was always in trouble. When I was in a church in Birmingham, I was always in trouble, according to them. I was always being pulled in the last pastor's office and surrounded by the deacons and telling me how bad I was and, you know, uh, and what I couldn't do. And, um, yeah, I knew the Lord had put things inside me to give to people and to share with people. And so that made me sullen and withdrawn. And I'm just coming out of that now. Um, and that's, it started with rock solid. And because I did not understand the gospel and I didn't understand grace. I couldn't understand what God had saved me from. Because I had a bad past, uh, a lot of people wouldn't let me forget it. And so I got to the place where I was despising myself all the time. And I certainly didn't understand the Father's love at all um dawn's had a terrible job with me all our married life where that's concerned um she's the nice gentle one <laughs> uh, i'm completely the opposite uh, but not now uh, because i am soft and gentle and i do love people but i've always been uh frightened to show that because every time i've sort of showed my head as it were it's been hit so i've always withdrawn um Roger said to me one day, don't hold back, Bob. I don't want to hold back, but I still feel I have to at times because I'm worried what you're going to do, you know, because I'm still trying to get over it. Um, but um, exactly what Mike was saying this morning is that you do come to a place where you're totally miserable. I saw no future. Even though I was a, I'm a Christian, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit for the best part of my Christian life. And the Lord has moved through me and used me with gifts and such. But I saw no future. And I haven't been happy until a year ago when I come here. And I'd never heard grace taught the way it was taught. And for the first time ever, I caught what, it really, what the gospel really was and is and what grace is. 
and I've come to realise, because you all intimidated me when I first came over, I'll be quite honest with you, and you did, you know, and um, because I felt that low, you know, and, um, but I've come to realise that um, he loves me as much as you, and, uh, you know, and it doesn't bother me, and I say this in a loving, gentle way, it doesn't bother me what you think, you know, it just doesn't hurt me no more, you know, and um, so I could identify with what Nathan was saying. And so now I take no notice because I know what grace is and I'm free. Amen. You see, God is after relationship with us. But there's a particular way that our relationship with God grows. And his relationship, the relationship we have with him, is based on grace. That is what Christ did for us. It's not based on what we can do for God. And, and that takes a little bit getting your head around. Because to some extent, it's counterintuitive to everything we experience in every other area of our life. But God has intervened in our lives in such a way that we are totally dependent on what he has done for us and not at all dependent for that relationship on what we can do for him. And that's astonishing, isn't it? I, I can't think of another relationship in life that is like that. But that's how, how God's done it because he loves us so much. Now, we have an enemy. He's called Satan. And whilst you know, we, we might want to kind of ignore that he's there. The reality is that we do. And he tries to get us to believe that we've got to earn the things of God. Because he knows that if he can think it's all about us making us worthy and becoming the provider of our own things and our own salvation and our own lives and making our own way, then and we put the, our faith in what we can do, he knows he can really mess up our relationship with God because we won't be able to experience the fullness of that relationship because we're trying to do it ourselves. And we're not designed to be able to do things ourselves. We're designed to be able to do things in the power of Christ and the power of the victory of the cross. That's grace. And whilst... A lot of people will actually use the right words and, and talk about this. The truth is, in practice, a lot of the things that, that we've done around church and conferences and all the rest of it works on this assumption that, that we have a, an ingrained belief somewhere that God moves in our life proportional to what we do or how holy we are or how much we pray, or how much we cry out, or how much we push through, how much we press in. And, and, and somehow we, 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 we bring all this in, and, and it sounds great. And you can get really excited about it, and really enthusiastic about it, and really fired up about it. And we're there, and we're trying to open the heavens, and create portals for the Spirit to pour out, and all sorts of stuff. When the truth is that Jesus opened the way 2,000 years ago and it's never, ever getting shut again. The heavens are not like brass anymore. We don't have to open them. The number of times people have said, well, we've got to cry out to God because the heavens are like brass over Cambridge. Absolute rubbish. 
again, quoting an old covenant thing and denying the victory of the cross. The heavens were opened by Christ. We have free access to his presence. We come boldly before his throne of grace for what we need. Now, really the point that I want to get on to this morning is this, and, and the point of the passage and, and why I've got that preamble is this. Because we can think all that. The truth is there's a lot of people who don't know Christ and therefore aren't standing in his grace. They're outside of his grace because they don't believe. And the Apostle Paul has quite a bit to say about the reality of where they're at. And we kind of get used to these verses, I think, sometimes if we, we, we've been around church. But let me take you to a different idea. Have you ever come... I assume you all know what it means when we say there's an elephant in the room. Yeah? That there's something that everybody knows and nobody's willing to acknowledge. It might be a person, it might be an event, it might be a fact, but, but something that everybody knows but nobody is willing to acknowledge. Have you ever been to like parties where you know there's an elephant in the room, that something's going on but, but nobody will do, say anything? And everybody's trying to pretend everything's okay, yeah? You've got, you've got, you, and how many of you experienced that? Put your hand up if you've experienced it yourself. Okay? So you know what, what, what I'm talking about. Now, that's what Paul says is the situation that the unbelievers in the world finds itself in. It's like there's an elephant in the room. Because basically, the world is going about relating to each other um, and talking to each other and communicating with each other whilst at the same time skillfully ignoring, edging past, slipping around and making a bit taboo to address the elephant in the room, which is God. And this is what he says, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation... Sorry, that, I'll go on to verse 20 in a minute. But let me just look at that, what that says at the moment. Now, this is talking about people who don't know God. Okay? It's not talking about you. He talks about two things here. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness, what does that mean? Well, what it means is wicked thinking, wrong thinking, bad thinking. Um, it's something that is wrong with your motives for why you do things. That's what he means by ungodliness. You, you haven't got good godly motives for what you're doing. And this word unrighteousness, what that means is in this, the, the, the words that's translated unrighteousness there means uh, injustice. It means there's a wrong. But more interestingly, when I started to dig into this word, what it actually means is that those things that are wrong actions and wrong words that, that are the manifestation of that, they come from 
the desire to put yourself first for your own comfort first. I think that's really interesting because there's actions we'd all say, well, that's not godly, that's not, that's not righteous. But where it all comes from is a desire for us first and our own comfort and what we want. And, and that produces actions. And one of those actions, because we don't want to acknowledge that, that there is a God, is that it says here, they, they suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress the truth? It basically means they know the truth, but they don't want to face up to it. And as a result of that, the people live in a way that, that sets up society and the world we live in to suppress the truth about God. And the reason they do that is so they can feel okay about ignoring the God question in their life too because he's the elephant in their room like he's the elephant in everybody else's room. And, and this word here means that they restrain and shackle the truth from coming out because the minute it's out, you've got to face up to it. The minute God, you address the elephant in the room, the minute you address the problem person, the minute you address the problem situation, it's out and everybody's got to face up to it. But the, 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 there's, a, there's a force a, in, in operation from men who suppress that truth. Now, I find that really interesting. That what this verse is saying is this. They know the truth. And the reason they know the truth is it's evident within them. Now, let me come back to Bob, okay? Or anybody else. We know what we do wrong. We know the stuff that is wrong in us. Because intuitively... It's evident to us. We know there's wrong in the world because intuitively we know. You don't have to tell somebody they're a sinner for them to know they're a sinner. They know they're a sinner. They know they're wrong with God. They just don't want to face the elephant in the room. And, that's and that might sound like, well, what we, what we, what's the point? The point is that's really exciting. Because whatever anybody tells you, God is telling you that intuitively every single person knows that they are wrong with God. Intuitively, deep down inside, they know they have a problem. And then he goes on and he says that there's more to it than that. Because not only do, is, is God stacked the way he's created the world so that intuitively we know... There is external evidence as well. So we don't just have an inward evidence, we have an external evidence. Uh, going on to verse nine, uh, 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Whether you've got the internal witness or you've got the witness of a world outside, 
that somehow we manage to deny God ever had anything to do with now because we're suppressing truth in society. Whatever you do, whether it's internal or external, God has given witness of himself and what he's like. This isn't a horrible world. This is a beautiful world. We're the ones that are making it horrible. So God's created a beautiful world because he's beautiful and he wants to bless us. So there's evidence. And what, what Paul is saying is that whatever anybody tells you, the truth is internally they know and externally they know. And that's really encouraging for us if we're trying to share the gospel with people. Now, listen carefully to what I said. That's really encouraging to us if we're trying to share the gospel with people. It's really discouraging to us if we're trying to tell people how bad they are. And that is what most of our preaching to the world outside has been. We have been against things. We have been telling people how bad they are. We have adopted a repent or burn strategy. And quite honestly, I get embarrassed by the guys that stand in Market Square and tell people how bad they are. And if I'm embarrassed, everybody else is embarrassed too. And the reason is this. People already know how bad they are. That is not God's strategy for turning people's hearts to him. He's already used that part of his strategy. He's already handled that. What is needed is something else, and that's the gospel, and the gospel is good news. It's not that you've got to get this. It's not, we're not saying everything's okay. We're not saying everybody's okay. What we're saying is there's no power in telling them they're bad. The power is in the gospel, which is good news of telling them what Christ did for him, them, and they're, they're deeply loved by him. Next week we're going to get on to this, that it's the goodness of God that turns hearts to repentance. Not the wrath of God, not the fear of God, the goodness of God that turns hearts to repentance. God knows what he's doing. He's got strategy about this. And, and he's, what, what he's basically saying is, you know you've got a problem, so let me show you, I love you. It's simple. And if in case you don't believe I love you, look at what I did on the cross where I died for you. And all, all that I provided to you through the cross. Are, are you getting this? You see, the system is really stacked because nobody wants to acknowledge the elephant in the room. And the way to break through the elephant in the room is the goodness of the gospel. Now, let me, let me put it this way. Um, I, when I was uh, in my early years in Cambridge, I, one of my clients was an elderly uh, professor. He'd been a professor at Cambridge University. He was like the, the man in the area. I think it was ge geology and movement of plates and rock formations and all that sort of stuff. And he was like the man. And I was sat... Um, talking to him and his wife one day, uh, it was only just like the year before he died, and um, we were talking about this because I knew that he was a believer. And I asked him this question, I said, how do you, how do you bring the two together, that academic research and, and being a believer? And what he said to me was really eye-opening. He said, you have to be really... Um, surreptitious about the way you do things because the whole system is stacked against me 
So I can know something is a fact, but I will never get funding to research that fact if it goes against an old earth. I can know something is a fact, but nobody will fund me. In fact, all my colleagues will laugh at me if I even suggest that evolution may not be a perfect theory. Because the whole system is stacked to an accepted culture. And that, that culture exists because we refuse to acknowledge an elephant in the room. And, it, and it's not, I don't want to get into the arguments about creation and evolution and all that sort of stuff this morning. My point is this, that when we get to a system that cannot even investigate facts that may suggest a different theory, we have a problem. And that's how our academic system has evolved. Now, that's a professor in Cambridge. Okay? Now, we, we need to be aware of that because it's evidence that what God is saying here is true. And, and we can argue with these guys intellectually, but actually, and, and we can attack them and we can say they're terrible and we can have debates with them and all that stuff, but the fruit is so small because what we, all we're doing to them is confirming what they already believe about Christians, which we're judgmental and harsh and we're arrogant. The truth is, we need to show them God's love, not God's intellect. Now, his intellect is beyond us, and we'll get some into the kingdom, but it doesn't bear the fruit that Paul saw by preaching the gospel he preached, which is the goodness of God. What he's saying is these guys are lying through their teeth when they're telling you there is no God, because they know there is. They're just not willing to face up to it. And telling them that they're bad won't get them to face up to it. <laughs> Do you get the point, what he's making? Okay. Let's, you see, I just want to finish off with, with this, this this morning, and then we're going we're gonna to do some praying for people. But he goes on, and, and what he shows something, he says something which I find is absolutely astonishing when you read it. And, and I didn't really understand it the, the first 20 times I read it, because it, did, it didn't seem to fit with anything. This is what he says. Uh, he, he's describing a progression of what happens when people deny that truth that they already know. And, and the progression starts like this. It says that they, um, well, let me read it. For they knew God, but they did not honor him. This is verse 21. Didn't honor him as God or give thanks. Now, it's a progression. Firstly, they don't honour God. What that means is they don't give him credit for what he has done. They, they operate on the basis, I can do it myself perfectly well, thank you. And when that, that, that way of thinking, that attitude lodges itself in our hearts, what happens next is, is we go down here and it says... Um, they didn't honour him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So there's something, when, when we don't give God the credit and we keep ignoring that elephant in the room and we deny everything we know and we deny everything we see, something happens to our hearts. And um, basically we, we start operating this idea that I'm the best judge of what's right for me. And, you know, 50 years ago, we would have laughed at people who thought that. 
But now we think that that's the way things should be and everybody should be the judge of what's right for them, irrespective of what he does to somebody else. So the world's moved, but the bit I want you to see is this, that their foolish heart was darkened. When you start, keep on denying the truth and what you know inside, it hurts your heart. It affects your heart. It affects the way you think. And if you keep on pushing like that and you keep on working yourself further and further away from facing up, something happens that your heart goes dark. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. God now has a problem. What does he do to try and reach that person? Because he's trying to reach every person on this planet. What does he do? And the answer is this. He says, I find it astonishing. Because I tell you what most people would recommend God did, which is tell people how bad they are and how wrong they are. This is what God does. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonoured among them. He gives them over to do what they wanted. He walks away. He lifts his covering. And I, I didn't understand this at all because I thought, well, that's not very loving, is it? Till I read Hosea. Now, if you were around about this time last year, you know I preached on Hosea. And Hosea is a prophetic explanation of what Jesus, <laughs> of this particular point. And, and how God approaches the world. Isaiah is a story of a man who keeps on loving a prostitute, even though she's unfaithful to him. It's a prophetic outworking of what God was trying to say to his people. And, and at the end of that story, Hosea basically says, I'm going to lift off all my provision. I'm going to lift off all my covering. She can go. But he carries on loving her. Why would he do that? Why would you do that to, to people whose hearts are so hardened? Doesn't that make things worse? It's like, has God washed his hands? Does he not care about these people? God lifts his covering from us, not because of the absence of lovingness. He lifts his covering from us because he loves us more than we can imagine. And even at the point of total rejection by man, he is still there waiting for us. God is prepared to let us go to the end of the line. He's prepared to see every single person who he loves, he cares for, he's passionate about, his heart is breaking for, destroy their lives because he knows that their hearts have become so hard, the only way he can ever reach them is to let them see they can't do it without him. It's his last throw of a loving God to win you back. He hasn't washed his hands of anybody. But until we can get to the point of saying, I just... I thought I could do it. I thought I could handle this. I thought I could run my own life. I thought I could sort it all out. And I was wrong. He can't get to those hard hearts 
until we come to that realization. And when we get to that point, remember what they were avoiding at the start in suppressing the truth was the judgment of God. When they get to that point, the one who goes, I can't do it. You're right. I'm a, I'm a broken man or I'm a broken woman. Then God is standing right there. Not as a judge, because he's already judged through Christ. But as a loving, caring, holy, passionate, merciful God who's full of grace. The God who will wait forever if that's what it needs to find you. But he doesn't want to wait forever. You see, God wants you because he loves you. He died for you. And he's removed everything you could ever do to please him. Because he wants you. And he doesn't want it to depend on you because he knows we'll mess up. So he makes it depend entirely, 100% on Jesus. And says, will you trust me? Will you believe me? Will you turn around? Will you start walking my way? <laughs>